0: For those of you who are visiting today, over the last number of months, we've been working as a congregation through the book of Nehemiah together, and today we have reached Nehemiah chapter 12. However, today we will be using this as our reading, and our text for today following that will be Psalm 127, the verses 1 and 2. So we'll start by the reading of Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12, which is the final page, 563 of your pew Bible. We read there, Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. And so follow the name of those priests, followed by the heads of the priests their brethren in the days of Jeshua, and in the days of Jehoiakim in verse 12, the priests, the heads of the fathers' houses, and then we reach verse 22. During the reign of Darius, the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their fathers' houses in the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Jehonahan, and Jadwa. The sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses, until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And the heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherabiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers across from them, to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group according to the command of David, the man of God. Mataniah, Bacbakiah, Obadiah, Meshullam, Talman, and Achab were gatekeepers keeping the watch at the storerooms of the gates. These lived in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophethites, from the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall towards the refuse gate. After them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his brother Shemiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe went before them. By the fountain gate in front of them, they went up the stairs of the city of David, on the stairway of the wall, beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. And the other thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. And I was behind them with half of the people on the wall, going past the tower of the ovens, as far as the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half the rulers with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maaseiah, Minjamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets. Also Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The singers sang loudly with Jezrehiah, the director. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far off, and at the the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the firstfruits, and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, There were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So far. We'll follow that with the reading of Psalm 127. And Psalm 127, the verses 1 and 2, will be our focus for today. And you'll be able to find that on page 713 of your pew Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for many of you, the words of this psalm Psalm 127 are very familiar. But do you know who the author of this psalm was? Kids, if you were to guess, if you were to guess, who do you think the author was? You might think David, because he wrote a lot of the psalms, but that would be wrong. Maybe to give you a hint, take a quick look at the language that you find in this psalm. The language that he uses, vanity, they labor in vain, they stay awake in vain, you rise early in vain. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Have your parents read that with you, I should say? Vanity of vanities, this book says, everything is vanity. The book was said to have been written by King Solomon, the very same person who was said to be the author of these opening words of psalm 127 and the message is one that's similar as well from beginning to end he's speaking a truth that we find throughout scripture and one which comes very much to the fore in our passage today this truth this message is the one that says surrender your all to the only one who matters for the lord builds the house and the Lord guards the city. The Lord builds the house. What does it mean to build a house? Your construction workers might think, oh, that's easy. Uh, raised bungalow, split-level entry, garage on one side with something behind it, and maybe uh, bedrooms above that. Other side, you have the living area and... Something above that. It's pretty straightforward. Top it off with a roof and you're good to go. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. There's a lot more nuances. But for many of you, as you look at our text today, you think of four walls and a roof. And there's a very good reason for that. When we use the word house today, we think of a physical building. It would likely be a similar case in the Old Testament. Of course, if you look at the occurrences of the word house in the Old Testament, you'll find that it has a broad range of references. Much broader than just a building with four walls and a roof. You find references to palace, to temples, to a particular family, or to a dynasty, a royal dynasty. The house of David is probably the most familiar in this group. But when we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it we are intended to keep in mind this physical house a family dwelling in particular now why is the imagery so significant a house in the old testament was small it's not like the houses that you and i have today today we live in mansions compared to what they had in the ancient near east you can drive into your garage and close the door and basically not have any interaction with your neighbors if you're really looking for it. But in the ancient Near East, the house was mainly just a place to sleep. And some of the bigger ones had a ground floor in them in which they kept some of the animals at night. Most of life was outside of the home. And so the house was rarely built with the idea of just having a family living there day in and day out and maybe barely venturing outside of the four walls. No, it was a small building, and you spent life outside of those four walls. As such, the house was one of the smaller buildings in the city. Even so, we read in our passage that unless the Lord is with the builders, they labor in vain. Something as regular, as average, as run-of-the-mill as a house with four walls and a roof, is completely dependent on the blessing of the Lord to succeed. Now, that can seem as something that's a bit of a puzzle, almost. We look at this, and for those who have built houses every day for a good portion of their life, or that have done other regular jobs every day, they might think, you know, this is just something I do. This is just part of everyday life. But even something like this is completely dependent on the blessing of the Lord in order to succeed. It's a reminder to us, a reminder of something as regular as this that goes up. That we can do nothing at all unless the Lord allows it. Nothing without the Lord's watchful care. Many of you here can attest to that. You may have tried to do something in your own strength thinking, oh, this is something that's pretty normal, pretty regular. I don't need the Lord's help for that. Perhaps it's because you were doing something that's maybe even skirting the edge of God's law that you're thinking, okay, I'm going to put the Lord aside for a moment. In his mercy, perhaps he didn't let you feel the full consequences of your action, but maybe, just maybe he let you spin your tires for a while as you were not relying on him. However, those of you who recognize that the Lord has done this for you also know that the opposite is true as well. If the Lord is blessing you and is behind your work and behind your task, you can sometimes get a real sense of his physical blessing, a sense of his blessings in a very real way, even in the little things. Your work flourishes and thrives because you're working according to the patterns that he has said will be blessed. You're maybe looking out for your employees and encouraging them to deal with each other in a biblical way. Or as an employee, your honesty is better than riches because it grants you a good name that brings in regular work. Though you are working for the Lord, as though for the Lord and not for man, your boss hasn't let your diligence slip by unnoticed and rewards you for it. Now, of course, these blessings aren't a reason for us to pat ourselves on the back. In fact, at best, they direct the glory back to God because he has prepared these works in advance for us to do and has shown us how to do them. Ephesians 2 verse 10 reminds us of that. But they do teach us and remind us that Uh, of where our success comes from. They also teach us where to direct our eyes in our future endeavors. The passage that we read today in Nehemiah begins with doing that exact same thing. What we see in the West as a boring yet complicated list of names to wade through actually has great significance for the people of God. They are evidence of what the Lord did for them. The reason for that is because these are the names of the priestly and Levitical class. Not only is it the names of these priests and Levites who came up with Zerubbabel in the time of the exile, in the return from the exile, but a record is also kept of the priests and Levites who had been the heads of houses right back to the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashim. These lists were a sign of the Lord, building and the Lord blessing. And this was important. For only those who were of the priestly line or of the house of Levi were allowed to serve in the temple courts. There were consequences for those who didn't worship in the way the Lord had commanded. If they had tried to go their own way, you would be able to think of, for example, King Isaiah. King Isaiah went into the temple courts and he decided to try to offer incense for himself. He wanted to be involved. But the Lord had strictly commanded that only the priests and the Levites were allowed to be involved with this kind of work. And so as Uzziah is there about to offer the incense, Azariah, the priest, comes with a group of 80 priests to face off against them. And he says, It is not for you, Uzziah. To burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. In his, when in his fury, Isaiah snatched up the incense, the censer in his hand to burn incense anyway, he was struck with leprosy. The consequence of having that disease meant that he was removed from the temple as unclean and barred from ever entering the temple again. The priesthood and the Levites were important to the people of Israel. They were symbols of God's ministry of mercy towards them. They were the mediators between God and man, offering sacrifices and carrying out ceremonies on behalf of the people. But more importantly, they served as an image of the fact that God himself had joined with his people. God had taken the first step. God had bridged the gap between man and himself, allowing for a symbolic act to suffice for the time being as atonement for sin and the reestablishment of a relationship with him. If the people of Judah had lost these lists of names, the names of these priests and Levites, and they didn't know who was serving anymore in the temple. If the Lord had not preserved for them a legacy, they would not have been able to resume temple worship. They would have been cut off from entering into his presence forever. The list, this list of long and complicated names was a sign of God's building of his house. It was a sign of his faithfulness and mercy to his people. He was not done with them. Yes, they may have sinned against him, but he would not cut them off from his presence. The Lord had built the house of Israel. He had chosen them, and he had raised them up. If it was up to the people themselves, they would have toiled in vain. If the Lord had not been on their side time and time again, they would have been swallowed up alive. But because the Lord was the ultimate builder of the house, he preserved and maintained it even through the exile. It was his choice to lay claim to them. It was his choice to preserve their spiritual lifeline to him through his remnant. This building has continued throughout the ages By His Spirit and Word, the Lord preserved for Himself over the entirety of history a remnant. Based on the covenant promises of God, His faithfulness to His Word, He always kept a remnant for His people. And He always kept a lifeline between them and Him. And through this remnant, the future was preserved for humanity. While other kings and other kingdoms focused on building up their houses, they focused on making great names for themselves. Eventually, their kingdoms turned to dust and disappeared. Their great cities in the desert fell to pieces and were buried in the sand. And during this time, God was silently moving events to allow for a different house to rise, a long-forgotten house, the house of David. In little Bethlehem, a Savior came, born into obscurity. He suffered and he died, carrying the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. He was the perfect priest, raised up in the order of Melchizedek, and through him is built an everlasting priesthood. But more than that, he is the one of whom it was said in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And indeed it does. These kingdoms of the earth, these empires that rise and that fall, eventually, all of that is vanity, building in vain. It reaches its glory and then it crumbles. But the Lord's house and the Lord's kingdom is one that will last forever. With Jesus Christ as a cornerstone, as the cornerstone, the Lord is building a city that he will guard forever. This leads us into our second point. Now, the record of the Levites was the most significant thing for the people of God there due to its preserving, its symbolizing the preserving work of the Lord. However, it was not the only record. In fact, what we see in chapter 11, the chapter that we passed over in our series, what we see there is that the nation as a whole has taken a huge step forward. Jerusalem was both the holy city and the capital. At the time of Nehemiah, they had leaders and temple staff, but that wasn't enough. They needed a bigger population in the city, both to defend it and to make for a more balanced population. Just think of Ottawa, for example. Imagine the MPs and the Senate all being made to serve themselves in that big city, having, provide, having to provide food for themselves, take care of themselves in that way. It probably wouldn't do so well. Government requires a community to run. And in the case of the people in Jerusalem, the same was true. They had a skeleton crew to keep the city running, but what they needed was butchers and bakers and sandal makers. However, there was more to it than simply that. Settling the holy city was a statement. It told all the surrounding nations that this was not simply some refugees, a group of rabble scattered around the world without hope and without leadership coming together. This was a city whose sole purpose was to coordinate worship of God. Yes, the leadership was there. Yes, the main defenses of the country were now there. But all of these were there to facilitate worship. Because this reborn nation had worship engraved on its heart, a desire to submit to the Lord imprinted on its soul, and a complete and total reliance on the Lord, directing all of its ways. This was made all the more apparent by the first thing that Nehemiah and the rest of the leadership did when the people were finally gathered in. They proceed to dedicate the wall. This dedication was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. This was a sign that they were turning over the watching of the city to the Lord. Sure, they had their watchmen, but they recognized that there was a master watchman who was looking out for them. Sure, they had leaders, but this was the leader who was watching over each of them. Now in the past, the leadership had failed the people. They had failed on a spiritual level, which then flowed out onto the physical plane with a fall of their city walls. Isaiah spoke of these leaders as useless watchmen. He prophesied in Isaiah 56 verse 10, Israel's watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They're dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. They had departed from the Lord and they had tried to rest on their own wisdom. They had turned to the nations around them for support instead of turning to God. They were focused on their own pleasures and their own desires. And because of this, God described them as watchmen, sleeping on the job. No more, said Judah. In dedicating the wall, the people of Judah are telling the world that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. At the same time, they were telling the Lord himself We've turned over the defenses of our city to you. Our lives are in your hands. Or in the words of our city, Lord, unless you watch over our city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. They tried going their own way. As watchmen, their leaders had failed them. How could they possibly go back to the way things were? No, they were going to focus on God as their watchman. They had him as leader and they were going to rely on him for safety because as they had seen through their history, there was no other option. The other options they had seen could satisfy for a bit. But where would they lead in the long run if the Lord was not there with them? As we see in the final verse of our text, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. Only the Lord provides in the long term. Only he sustains. His people recognize that if they were to try to make a go of it themselves, they would only end in frustration. The end result would be vanity. It would crumble. But if they submitted themselves to the Lord, they could rest assured that they were in good hands. For he gives his beloved sleep. And so the people dedicated the defenses of their city, their walls, to the Lord, their covenant God, trusting that he would watch over them day and night. This same Lord who watches over them, who watched over them, is the Lord that maintains his church today. Brothers and sisters, we can have big plans sometimes for how the church ought to run. We can have our own ideas on how certain things ought to go. And these could be very good ideas. But we can never lose sight of whose the church is. It's not our church, it's not run in accordance with our feelings, our desires, our efforts. It is not run in accordance with our traditions. It is Christ's church. God is the builder, and He builds on Christ, the cornerstone. Christ is the shepherd, Christ is the watchman over the sheep. We no longer have a priestly line that mediates between us and the watchman, the ultimate watchman, the Lord. We don't have a group of people that's preserved to intercede for us. But what we do have is a perfect priest who's in the heavenly temple before the Father, whose work to redeem his church is done, and whose work to bring in his sheep into the sheepfold, and to watch over them through the course of the ages is still ongoing. Christ is the one who maintains his church today. He is the one who gathers them together. He is the one who defends them and who preserves them. He is the one who brings his people together in the unity of the true faith by his spirit and by his word. Sometimes we worry, we fear about the state that our church may end up in if we continue down one path or if we continue down another. We worry that we're not doing enough to protect our church as the bride of Christ or to protect the sheep of the church. Each of us in our own way is trying to be the chief shepherd, trying to be the master builder. We fight, we strive, we scramble to pull all the scraps together. We worry that everything's pulling apart at the seams and we feel like we're in the middle, getting pulled apart with it. But do we stop? Do we think? Do we pray? There is only one chief shepherd. There is only one master builder. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before he ascended into heaven, he is the one who said, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he is. By his spirit, he dwells in us. And by his word, he guides us every step of the way. It's our task to look to him in faith, to let him guide us. It's our task to ask him for his guidance. But he is the one who guides. He builds his house, his people. And he guides and protects them through the ages. He is there when we're shaken, when we're weak when we're sad and when we're lonely. And he is there to take our burdens off of our shoulders because he's already taken them on his own. He is there as his people's defender and protector and builder. The Lord is there. Unless the Lord watches over the city, its people watch over it in vain. But when the people of the city turn their eyes to the Lord when they fix their eyes on Christ, then it is Christ who watches over the city. And the end result of that will be that they will never be looking in vain. Amen.